The new book by Robin D'Angelo called White Fragility has been featured on my show recently. I was reading an article by a black academic who favored the book. In particular, the idea of racialism seemed to resonate with her. Another black friend of mine, Jonathan Hamilton, has recommended this book. Therefore, it's extremely interesting that Matt Taibbi, who has a renowned reputation as a straight shooter, came out against this book recently. Matt Taibbi slams bestseller White Fragility as corporate vision on racism. Author and journalist Matt Taibbi criticized Robin D'Angelo's best-selling book, White Fragility, as the corporate vision of how to tackle racism. Taibbi said in a Hill TV interview this past week, there is an extraordinary irony in white Americans elevating a white corporate consultant to the top of bestseller lists in the wake of George Floyd's killing by police in Minneapolis. In the book, which has seen a resurgence in popularity amid the nationwide reckoning on race relations, D'Angelo lays out her theory on white Americans' defensiveness when it comes to addressing racism. This is how they want to reinterpret their racial issues, he said. This is the racism problem as seen through the lens of somebody who makes thousands of dollars an hour being hired by companies. Taibbi said that rather than confronting how they contribute to systemic racism, companies tend to force their employees into trainings with outside academics like D'Angelo. This is how corporate America views the race problem. It views it as an individual issue where racism is sort of inexorably stuck in all of us and the only way that we can combat it is through relentlessly listening to corporate consultants, Taibbi said. Here is Matt's teaser piece on white fragility, a few thoughts on America's smash hit number one guide to egghead racialism. This came out on June 28th, presumably as a teaser. It says it's part of a larger piece that will be made available to subscribers later this week. A core principle of the academic movement that shot through elite schools in America since the early 90s was the view that individual rights, humanism, and the democratic process are all just stocking horses for white supremacy. The concept, as articulated in books like former corporate consultant Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, Amazon's number one bestseller, reduces everything, even the smallest and most innocent human interactions, to racial power contests. I want to jump in here early enough to keep my own academic space free that I see the legitimacy and the truth of showing how everything can be boiled down to race, even as I see that as problematic. The problem I see with it is how to solve the problem and get us all out of it. As it works out with identity politics, it's too easy to get bogged down in the details and not come up with an overarching smash hit movement to solve the problem. Defund the police, I think, is an example of how things should be working. The problem I see with the racialization is that if everything is about race and not about class, then we're going to end up not able to solve the problem. I think that the reason Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X were boiling things down to poor people's marches instead of black people's marches is that they could see this coming. All right, now back to Matt. 
It's been mind-boggling to watch white fragility celebrated in recent weeks when it surged past a Hunger Games book on bestseller lists, USA Today cheered, American readers are more interested in combating racism than in literary escapism. When D'Angelo appeared on The Tonight Show, Jimmy Fallon gushed, I know, everyone wants to talk to you right now. White fragility has been pitched as an uncontroversial roadmap for fighting racism at a time when after the murder of George Floyd, Americans are suddenly, and appropriately, interested in doing just that. Except this isn't a straightforward book about examining one's own prejudices. Have the people hyping this impressively crazy book actually read it? D'Angelo isn't the first person to make a buck pushing tricked-up pseudo-intellectual horseshit as corporate wisdom, but she might be the first to do it selling Hitlerian race theory. White fragility has a simple message. There is no such thing as a universal human experience, and we are defined not by our individual personalities or moral choices, but only by our racial category. If your category is white, bad news. You have no identity apart from your participation in white supremacy. Anti-blackness is foundational to our very identities. Whiteness has always been predicated on blackness which naturally means a positive white identity is an impossible goal. D'Angelo instructs us there is nothing to be done here except strive to be less white. To deny this theory or to have the effrontery to sneak away from the tedium of D'Angelo's lecturing, what she describes as leaving the stress-inducing situation is to affirm her conception of white supremacy. This intellectual equivalent of the ordeal by water if you float, you're a witch, is orthodoxy across much of academia. D'Angelo's writing style is pure pain. The lexicon favored by intersectional theorists of this type is built around the same principles as Orwell's Newspeak. It banishes ambiguity, nuance, and feeling and structures itself around sterile word pairs like racist and anti-racist, platform and deplatform center, and silence that reduce all thinking to a series of binary choices. Ironically, Donald Trump does something similar only with words like amazing and sad that are simultaneously more childish and livelier. Writers like D'Angelo like to make ugly verbs out of ugly nouns and ugly nouns out of ugly verbs. There are countless permutations on centering and privileging alone. In a world where only a few ideas are considered important, redundancy is encouraged. E.g., to be less white is to break with white silence and white solidarity, to stop privileging the comfort of white people. Or Ruth Frankenberg, a premier white scholar in the field of whiteness, describes whiteness as multidimensional. D'Angelo writes like a person who was put in time out as a child for speaking clearly. When there is a disequilibrium in the habitus, when social cues are unfamiliar and or when they challenge our capital, we use strategies to regain our balance, she says. People taken out of their comfort zones find ways to deal, according to Google Translate. <laughs> 
Ideas that go through the English D'Angelo translator usually end up significantly altered, as in this key part of the book where she addresses Dr. Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. One line of King's speech in particular, that one day he might be judged by the content of his character and not by the color of his skin, was seized upon by the white public because the words were seen to provide a simple and immediate solution to racial tensions. Pretend that we don't see race and racism will end. Colorblindness was now promoted as the remedy for racism, with white people insisting that they didn't see race or, if they did, that it had no meaning to them. That this speech was held up as the framework for American race relations for more than half a century, precisely because people of all races understood King to be referring to a difficult and beautiful long-term goal worth pursuing, is discounted, of course. White fragility is based upon the idea that human beings are incapable of judging each other by the content of their character, and if people of different races think they are getting along or even loving one another, they probably need immediate anti-racism training. This is an important passage because rejection of King's dream of racial harmony, not even as a description of the obviously flawed present, but as the aspirational goal of a better future, has become a central tenet of this brand of anti-racist doctrine mainstream press outlets are rushing to embrace. The book's most amazing passage concerns the story of Jackie Robinson. The story of Jackie Robinson is a classic example of how whiteness obscures racism by rendering whites, white privilege, and racist institutions invisible. Robinson is often celebrated as the first African American to break the color line. While Robinson was certainly an amazing baseball player, this storyline depicts him as racially special, a black man who broke the color line himself. The subtext is that Robinson finally had what it took to play with whites, as if no black athlete before him was strong enough to compete at that level. Imagine if instead the story went something like this. Jackie Robinson, the first black man whites allowed to play Major League Baseball. There is not a single baseball fan anywhere, literally not one, except perhaps Robin D'Angelo, I guess, who believes Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier because he finally had what it took to play with whites. Everyone familiar with this story understands that Robinson had to be exceptional, both as a player and as a human being, to confront the racist institution known as Major League Baseball. His story has always been understood as a complex, long-developing political tale about overcoming violent systemic oppression. For D'Angelo to suggest history should recast Robinson as the first black man whites allowed to play Major League Baseball is grotesque and profoundly belittling. Robinson's story, moreover, did not render whites, white privilege, and racist institutions invisible. It did the opposite. Robinson uncovered a generation of job inflation for mediocre white ballplayers in a dramatic example of privilege that was keenly understood by baseball fans of all races 50 years before white fragility. Baseball statistics nerds have long been arguing about whether to put asterisks next to the records of white stars who never had to pitch to Josh Gibson or hit against prime Satchel Paige or Webster McDonald. 
Robinson's story on every level exposed and evangelized the truth about the very forces D'Angelo argues it rendered invisible. It takes a special kind of ignorant for an author to choose an example that illustrates the mathematical opposite of one's intended point. But this isn't uncommon in White Fragility, which may be the dumbest book ever written. It makes the art of the deal read like Anna Karanina. Yet these ideas are taking America by storm. The movement that calls itself anti-racism, I think it deserves that name a lot less than pro-lifers deserve theirs, and am amazed journalists parrot it without question, is complete in its pessimism about race relations. It sees the human being as locked into one of three categories, members of oppressed groups, allies, and white oppressors. Where we reside on the spectrum of righteousness is, they say, almost entirely determined by birth, a view probably shared by a lot of 4chan readers. With the full commitment to the program of psychological ablutions outlined in the book, one may strive for a less white identity, but again D'Angelo explicitly rejects the Kingian goal of just trying to love one another as impossible for two people born with different skin colors. This dingbat racialist cult, which has no art, music, literature, and certainly no comedy, is the vision of progress institutional America has chosen to endorse in the Trump era. Why? Maybe because it fits. It won't hurt the business model of the news media, which for decades now has been monetizing division and has known how to profit from moral panics and witch hunts since before Fleet Street discovered the mod rocker wars. I think that's the bottom line. I think that's the nugget of gold that we can mine from this article. Racialism is going to make people feel better, and it's probably going to even solve some of the problems, but it won't disrupt the economic model. If Wall Street is behind it, what they eventually hope will happen, and this is guaranteed, this is what they hope will happen, is that poor people and working people will not have to be dealt with. Classism can continue unabated while we all feel much better about ourselves. So that's why I think Matt is doing a great service to humanity in attacking this book. Even though some of the things in the book are worth discussing and reading, we're going to be in trouble if we don't figure out that the eventual solution has to be economic and not emotional. If this book is supposed to be a smokescreen so that we don't dig down and get to the economic solutions to the problems, then I am all about tearing it down, even with its good parts. While I want to be as fair to the book as possible, I absolutely don't want it to distract us in getting to the real roots of the problem. Back to Matt. Democratic Party leaders, pioneers of the costless gesture, have already embraced this performative race politics as a useful tool for disciplining apostates like Bernie Sanders. Bernie took off in presidential politics as a hard-charging crusader against a Wall Street fattened political establishment and exited four years later a self-flagellating, defeated old white man who seemed to regret not apologizing more for his third house. Clad in kente cloth scarves, the Democrats who crushed him will burn up C-SPAN with homilies on privilege even as they reassure donors they'll stay away from Medicare for All or the carried interest tax break. For corporate America, the calculation is simple. 
What's easier, giving up business models based on war, slave labor, and regulatory arbitrage, or benching Aunt Jemima? There's a deal to be made here, greased by the fact that the anti-racism profits promoted in books like White Fragility share corporate America's instinctive hostility to privacy, individual rights, freedom of speech, etc. Corporate America doubtless views the current protest movement as something that can be addressed as an HR matter, among other things by hiring thousands of D'Angelo's to institute codes for the proper mode of black-white workplace interaction. If you're wondering what that might look like, here's D'Angelo explaining how she handled the fallout from making a bad joke while she was facilitating anti-racism training at the office of one of her clients. When one employee responds negatively to the training, D'Angelo quips, the person must have been put off by one of her black female team members. The white people, she says, were scared by Deborah's hair. White priests of anti-racism like D'Angelo seem universally to be more awkward and clueless around minorities than your average Trump-supporting construction worker. D'Angelo doesn't grasp the joke flopped and has to be told two days later that one of her web developer clients was offended. In despair, she writes, I seek out a friend who is white and has a solid understanding of cross-racial dynamics. After D'Angelo confesses her feelings of embarrassment, shame, and guilt to the enlightened white cross-racial dynamics expert, everyone should have such a person on speed dial, she approaches the offended web developer. She asks, would you be willing to grant me the opportunity to repair the racism I perpetrated toward you in that meeting? At which point the web developer agrees, leading to a conversation establishing the parameters of problematic joke resolution. This dialogue is straight out of South Park. Is it okay if I touch your penis? No, you may not touch my penis at this time has a good shot of becoming standard at every transnational corporation, law firm, university, newsroom, etc. Of course, the upside such consultants can offer is an important one. Under pressure from people like this, companies might address long overdue inequities in boardroom diversity. The downside, which we're already seeing, is that organizations everywhere will embrace powerful new tools for solving professional disputes through a never-ending purge. One of the central tenets of D'Angelo's book, and others like it, is that racism cannot be eradicated and can only be managed through constant, lifelong vigilance, much like the battle with addiction. A useful theory if your business is selling teams of high-priced toxicity hunters to corporations as next-generation versions of efficiency experts. In the fight against this disease, companies will need the help forever and ever. He's right. There's always a business angle. Cancellations already are happening too fast to track. In a phenomenon that will be familiar to students of Russian history, accusers are beginning to appear alongside the accused. Three years ago, a popular Canadian writer named Hal Nidvitsky was denounced for expressing the opinion that anyone anywhere should be encouraged to imagine other people, other cultures, other identities. He reportedly was forced out of the Writers' Union of Canada for the crime of cultural appropriation and denounced as a racist by many, including a poet named Gwen Benaway. 
The latter said Nizvetsky doesn't see the humanity of indigenous peoples. Last week, Benaway herself was denounced on Twitter for failing to provide proof that she was indigenous. Michael Korenberg, the chair of the board at the University of British Columbia, was forced to resign for liking tweets by Dinesh D'Souza and Donald Trump, which you might think is fine, but what about Latino electrical worker Emmanuel Cafferty fired after a white activist took a photo of him making an OK symbol? It was described online as a white power sign. How about Sue Schaefer, the heretofore unknown graphic designer the Washington Post decided to out in a 3,000-word article for attending a Halloween party two years ago in blackface, a failed parody of a different blackface incident involving Megyn Kelly? She was fired, of course. How is this news? Why was ruining this person's life necessary? People everywhere today are being encouraged to snitch out schoolmates, parents, and colleagues for thought crime. The New York Times wrote a salutary piece about high schoolers scanning social media accounts of peers for evidence of anti-black racism to make public because what can go wrong with encouraging teenagers to start submarining each other's careers before they've even finished growing? People who go to college end up becoming racist lawyers and doctors. I don't want people like that to keep getting jobs, one 16-year-old said. Someone really started a Google Doc of racists and their info for us to ruin their lives. I love Twitter, wrote a different person, adding cheery emojis. A bizarre echo of North Korea's three generations of punishment doctrine could be seen in the boycotts of Holy Land Grocery, a well-known hummus maker in Minneapolis. In recent weeks, it's been abandoned by clients and seen its lease pulled because of racist tweets made by the CEO's 14-year-old daughter eight years ago. Parents calling out their kids is also in vogue. In Slate, Making a Mountain Out of a Molehill wrote to Advice columnist Michelle Herman in a letter headlined, I think I've screwed up the way my kids think about race. The problem, the aggrieved parent noted, was that his, her sons had gone to a diverse school and their closest friends are still a mix of black, Hispanic, and white kids, which to them was natural. The parent worried when one son was asked to fill out an application for a potential college roommate and expressed annoyance at having to specify race because I don't care about race. Clearly a situation needing fixing. The parent asked if someone who didn't care about race was just as racist as someone who only has white friends and asked if it was too late to do anything. No fear, Herman wrote. It's never too late for kids like yours to educate themselves. To help, she linked to a program of materials designed for just that purpose, a lesson plan for being an ally that included a month of readings of white fragility. Hopefully that kid with the black and Hispanic friends can be cured. This notion that colorblindness is itself racist, one of the main themes of white fragility, could have amazing consequences. In researching I Can't Breathe, I met civil rights activists who recounted decades of struggle to remove race from the law. I heard stories of lawyers who were physically threatened for years in places like rural Arkansas just for trying to end explicit hiring and housing discrimination and other remnants of Jim Crow. 
Last week, an Oregon county casually exempted people of color who have heightened concerns about racial profiling from a COVID-19 related mask order. Who thinks creating different laws for different racial categories is going to end well? When has it ever? At a time of catastrophe and national despair, when conservative nationalism is on the rise and violent confrontation on the streets is becoming commonplace, it's extremely suspicious that the books, politicians, the press, university administrators, and corporate consultants alike are asking us to read, are urging us to put race even more at the center of our identities and fetishize the unbridgeable nature of our differences. Meanwhile, books like The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn and To Kill a Mockingbird, which are both beautiful and actually anti-racist, have been banned for containing the N-word. White fragility contains it too, by the way. It's almost like someone thinks there's a benefit to keeping people divided.